I think, uh, you know, while we're pointing out uh, how big of a piece of shit Eric Greitens is, I think we're obliged on behalf of Mark to point out that Eric Greitens went to Duke. (laughs) (laughs) Just the worst people went there. Of course. Of course he did. Um, (laughs) Connor Southard is the only uh, good Duke graduate, right? I mean, big asterisk there, but yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Connor. (laughs) (laughs) Please cut this out. Uh, Connor Southard and uh, Connor Southard and Richard Nixon. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the two best two graduates. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Mike Dicta, America's Nine. what? I I that can't be. I know you don't count uh, eight, but Seriously, so we're gonna go. So we are gonna go with eight counting, huh? Eight is canon. Yes. All right, fine. Welcome everyone to episode nine of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I'm your host Charles Starr. I have with me. As always, uh, except for uh, the incredible episode seven, uh, Tarek, the hell dude. Hello, everyone. Back again. Uh, appearance number four, I believe. Uh, we have Christina. Hey, y'all. Uh, since we are counting episode eight, I think this is number three for Adam. Hey, folks. And joining us for the first time, uh, welcome uh, Pat to the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, so we've got uh, three cases, as always, uh, today. Uh, we're going to start uh, down south, uh, where uh, I think we found ourselves a few times before. This time uh, in Alabama, where I know uh, we dealt with uh, Roy Moore before. <laughs> uh, but this time, uh, we are in Jefferson County, where the 11th Circuit uh, just refused to allow uh, the town of Gardendale to uh, excise itself from the Jefferson County School District on the grounds that uh, the entire town of Gardendale is too racist. (laughs) (laughs) For the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, That's racist. It was something. The the movement was literally called, they called themselves a secession movement, which is really convenient because you can just, you know, (laughs) keep the same name. So you're talking about (laughs) who the bad guy is. Love to secede. Yeah, it was a it was a really crazy pattern where Jefferson County has been under a desegregation order based and under under court supervision, I suppose. Uh, Jefferson County has been under court supervision since before the Eleventh Circuit existed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Under the Fifth uh, Circuit before, like, I think. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. The yep. The Fifth Circuit. Georgia used to be uh, Alabama. Georgia. A couple of other. Florida used to be in the very large Fifth Circuit before the Southern population exploded, and they had to split the Fifth Circuit into into two. Uh, and so, this is a really longstanding, uh, longstanding order. And Jefferson County, uh, among other things, has to get approval before things like this happen, and. It really feels in a way like the Gardendale kind of just lost a game of musical mm-hmm. chairs 
because like there have been a bunch of towns that have successfully been able to secede from the Jefferson County School District, all really on the same grounds that Gardendale was trying to get out. But this last attempt by Gardendale <laughs> kind of pushed pushed the numbers in Jefferson County a little too far and pushed a judge sort of a little too far. And they were and they were finally the first one who got kind of caught and are not allowed to leave the Jefferson County. School. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of tell that they were sort of expecting just to have a hearing, like just be like an in and out thing. Like, hey, we're going to make our own school district. That's super racist. And then they were like, oops, there's actually going to be a trial about it. So like they were totally caught with their pants down being racist. So, yeah, I mean, the the history, like as as the 11th Circuit tells it, is that they they really seemed conscious of the fact that they could lose Mm -hmm. and they made, and they would have all of these discussions about how not to lose. You know, they were like, well, there are these diversity transfers and we should probably allow these diversity transfers or the court, you know, is going to stop us. And then they would be like, nah, no diversity transfer. (laughs) And then North, (laughs) and then North Smithfield, which is like the, the the relatively certainly black municipality just outside of Gardendale, which has been going to Gardendale schools since the early 70s. They're like, well, we should probably include North Smithfield because they've been part of our district forever. And if we cut them out, then the court is definitely going to see this as, uh, as racist. Is. And then they and then they cut them out anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> like each time, like so. There's this whole record of them noticing that they should probably cover their tracks. A well, little. they just don't care because I mean, there's. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any indication that they have to care in the Eleventh Circuit until now. Well, well, well. I think what happened is that they got caught, you know, committing the cardinal sin in in America, which isn't actually being racist, but appearing to be racist. Ooh. And, right, quiet, quiet, quiet part loud. Yeah, right, right. 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 Yeah. It's like all, that's how every, that's how all of these things resolve themselves with people going on record. I mean, one of the, one of the more important exhibits in the case was like essentially a Facebook meme where they, where it was just like a vulnerable white oh child. Oh my God. Yeah, a little it's white like girl. Of, yeah. And a vulnerable white girl and all of the and all of the ills that the larger school district presented for her future. Jesus, yeah, right. who makes so these? Page, it's like, yeah, this is a good idea. Of the uh, opinion has has the meme, um, which is like a little white girl with her backpack and her very 1950s dress. And it, the text says, which path will Gardendale choose? Places that chose not to form and support their own school system. And then it lists, uh, you know, it, group of towns that are in the unified school district communities that chose to form and support their own school system and are listed as some of the best places to live in the country. And then, you know, it lists, uh, places that, you know, did secede. And then on the bottom in a black box is on which list will you place Gardendale? 
Oh. I mean, it's essentially a white genocide meme yeah. without the overt, overt racism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the, the subtext is what the they're going for. The, here. No, it's 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 yeah. it's a white genocide meme with all the racism. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's where no, but without that's like where they think they're be, it's where they think they're being savvy, mm-hmm. right? But even then, they can't stop themselves from putting. You know, like the little house on the prairie girl <laughs> on the poster because they can't stop telling on themselves. And so they get caught. And they, and I, and the procedural yeah. history here is kind of interesting because the district court found that they had improper racist motives and sort of didn't allow them to secede. And someone who read, I didn't read the opinion below, but I think uh, I'm sure at least one of you did. (laughs) Um, Like the district court crafted its own remedy, Mm -hmm. right? Which still like, which sort of kind of allowed it under supervision. Yeah. I mean, does anyone want to talk about before we get into all this, like what, secession means because this is not something that happens in the rest of the country this is like i think sort of like a southern kind of maybe alabama only uh way to be really racist i believe the new york times uh there's a new york times article in the magazine from this past september that uh, i believe christina sent around to the group beforehand (laughs) yeah uh, you know hat tip for that that discussed the background here and essentially in uh, i believe in the coastal cities and especially in the northeast you have a lot of school districts, I believe, that are attached to municipalities and that are based on county structure, whereas I believe in the South, a lot of this is, you know, essentially you have Jefferson County and then there's a school district that encompasses the entire county versus rather than having kind of an amalgamation of different towns and other districts. Um, And because uh, a county itself in the South can be pretty racially diverse, despite some of the... uh, uh, obviously attempts to fight against desegregation over the last 60 years or so since these orders came out or 50 years or so since these orders came out, they had slowly desegregated. Um, whereas in the Northeast, you could kind of, you know, like we talked about gerrymandering in one of the earlier episodes, you could gerrymander the districts in a certain way that you didn't have or that you could kind of um, uh, escape this initial presumption, I believe, of getting around the order. Right. Yeah. And well, so well, what did, so, uh, go Sorry. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so what what had happened was um, that the the orders the orders worked, um, and the these are the orders back in like the early seventies. Right. Yeah, this and, goes back to sixty five. Right? The orders go back yeah. to Brown, but but I mean these orders stay in place for a long time. I mean the order the the Stout order has been in place since the sixties. Brown itself lasts 71. until nineteen ninety nine. Um, so the order sort of reached their peak power um, in the early 70s before the sort of anti-busing movement um, sort of started to push mm-hmm. them back. Um, and then the Supreme Court came out in Milliken v. Bradley um, in a Detroit case um, saying basically that, you know, de facto segregation is okay as long as it's not intentional. Um, and with that, the orders sort of, the, the, 
the the crack was there in the system for mm-hmm. for you know folks to sort of seize upon, right? To say like, okay, well, we can do this as long as we don't say the racist things. We can be racist. Yeah, it's really interesting how they frame secession. Like it it just goes back to this like conservative bullshit where it's all like taking back local control, which is like the same line they've been pandering literally since the Civil War. So right. it's, it's states' rights yeah. in you know the 21st century, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the it's the Southern strategy, except on a super local level here. Exactly. You know, you're not you. You know, like hell, even when Lee Atwater came out with the Southern strategy in the 70s, he mentioned you know things about busing and, and segregation. It's like you can't use these words. Say local control. Say states' rights. Mm-hmm. You'll get the buy-in from white suburbia that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah. So, so desegregation in the U.S. reached, I think, reached its actual peak in the late '80s, um, which is when there were still enough of these uh, desegregation orders that were in place, you know, based on lawsuits by the NAACP and, um, you know, formerly vigorous uh, DOJ Civil Rights Department. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, Reagan and Bush and Bush two administrations mm-hmm. really stopped trying to enforce the orders. And, um, almost half of them were, were lifted during the George W. Bush administration. Yeah. So there were, I think around 600 or so in place in 2000. And now there are 300 and something. Well, and, and for the record, the st- the stout order for Jefferson County was challenged before, and they explicitly kept it in place. Yeah. Right. They're like, they basically said progress is being made, but we're still watching you. Kind of because I think whatever judges were reviewing it at the time saw exactly this coming mm-hmm. down the pike. And so, you know, and it just sort of was borne out as, you know, one municipality after another started peeling themselves off. Uh, and then Gardendale tried to follow their lead um, and then couldn't uh, couldn't keep themselves from doing it in the most aggressive and obvious way possible. Well, there was there was yeah. a um, there's a white community uh, that they were trying to scoop in too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like they were they were right. expressly yeah. trying to push out. Uh, these other communities and then like, Oh, but Mount Olive, uh, this community over here, you know, we should bring them in. Right. I mean, there was no effort whatsoever to uh, hide the racial tenor of what they were up to. Mm -hmm. And, and they tried to do it because it's all about trying to work on the technicalities, right? Gardendale is a municipality. So they try to base it strictly on their municipal lines. And since North Smithfield, the black, Town is outside of those lines. They would cut them out. And Mount Olive, they tried to get in by essentially proposing that the town be annexed into Gardendale. Mm-hmm. And so there wouldn't be a Mount Olive anymore except as a Gardendale neighborhood. And so it could stay inside the school district. I believe there was even some tension involving North Smithfield because the proposal that was submitted to the court involved keeping some North Smithfield kids in the uh, the high school for several years, at least until they finished out, I think, their term. And some of the Gardendale residents were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We want to be like super racist. We don't even want to pretend that we're giving this, uh, you know, kind of veneer of, of treating people equally. And they said, all right, well, if I knew that we were going to allow the North Smithfield kids to stay, I wouldn't even sign on to this thing. Yeah, yeah, I think soup, yeah. that that had popped up on the, um, you know, the, the, the Facebook, the Facebook page, page mm-hmm. right, of the, the nonprofit group, which is called 
uh, FOCUS, which stands for Future <laughs> of Our Community, Utilizing Schools. It's really clunky, and uh, but at least, I guess, it's shor- shorter than you know the original 14 words. <laughs> oh, got him! <laughs> pew, pew! Yeah. Well, so what I, I, I kind of want to talk about, like, this, just the district court op- opinion was sort of interesting to me because... Like it really did try to do like a split the baby sort of uh, decision where they attempted to both like say like, yes, what Gardendale is doing is racist. And like, here's all the reasons why it's racist, but we're going to sort of let them do it. It, But like in a way, like by letting them do it, that means that they get to have control over the situation, which just sort of shows like, you know, how like weird our legal system is and like how like you almost have to work on the technicalities to get anything done. Especially. So wait, now what, how did they split the, like what was the method that the district court used to sort of control the sort of pace of the Gardendale secession? So, and, and it wasn't just the um, order itself, but actually at trial, there was a moment where the, the judge um, took, took a, 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 not, a, not a break, but she you know, took her, her privilege during the questioning of the um, school superintendent who had been chosen by yep. the nonprofit parents group. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is and this is a, a school superintendent who would come from rural Illinois, who had never in his entire career worked with or hired a black teacher. And she took a moment during his questioning to ask him about Brown v. Board and, you know, have him mm-hmm. explain in his own words what the decision meant. And she literally read from the decision to him while he was on the stand. Because he couldn't explain it. Because he didn't know what right. fucking Board v. versus Board of Education was. Like, right. like it was right. awful. It was really so, embarrassing. So yeah. you can tell, you can tell, I mean, you could tell from her opinion, you could tell from the trial that she knew exactly what was going on. But I think what happened with the decision was she thought she was going to lose. So she put a sort of. She let them have uh, two elementary schools, I think. Yeah. And then with an option to get like a like buy the high school from the county in three years if they have like a desegregation. And they had to they had to hire, I think, like a certain number of black teachers and they had to put in a certain number of black uh, members of the school board. One. But I think the most important yeah, part one. was that they're yes. under judicial, they're still under judicial like control. There's still like a, there's still like an right. order on them is, is right. what the she means. created. Right. Yeah. She created an order kind of sua sponte mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, all right, well, this school district is new, but we're going to put a desegregation order yes. in place kind of at the start to make sure when you, you know, that you're not, you know, that you're at least kind of hiding, I guess your, your over discrimination there. Mm-hmm. Well, what, right. And I like, I guess the, what I what I recall of the grounds for doing that is she didn't she thought that she might lose on appeal on the grounds that the county itself could be removed from the desegregation order or, or from the court supervision. And once the county was removed from the from court supervision, then, all, yeah. then yeah, then all of the municipalities could go their separate ways. Yeah. And so as a way of beating that to the punch, she was going to stick a new order on Gardendale and keep it under her supervision. And what I thought was interesting in the 11th Circuit 
is they're like, well, the district court's really not allowed to do that. They can't jump the gun and guess. And so technically Gardendale lost because they said, you're still subject to the Jefferson County order. You have all of this evidence of racial motivation in your secession. So we are going to undo the complicated shit that the district court did and just say no. But they kind of, I think, in the way they wrote the opinion, I just had this like wave of nausea (laughs) where I felt like the 11th Circuit is ready to declare Jefferson County like a unitary district and remove them from supervision soon anyway. Like they're like the kind of hint was what the district court, and I don't know why I feel that, probably because it was written by William Pryor. <laughs> um, but like the, but I just felt like they were just hinting that it's certainly possible that Jefferson County could get under the yoke of the court supervision, and then none of this would matter. For everyone listening who's not a lawyer, William Pryor is very bad. <laughs> He was one of the torture memo guys, wasn't he? Not great. But the court went on to say how this high school that was at issue that they had, I guess, built back in 2010 that was in Gardendale was like a model of desegregation and that this is what they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And I think that Charles is 100% correct in that, you know, they're really hinting at what's going to happen in the next year or so. It's like, all right, well, look, we kept the racists from creating their own school district Therefore, uh, we're going to let this desegregation order. One one thing that one thing that you know that you mentioned though that was irritating to me was uh, Gardendale couldn't afford to build its own school. <laughs> yeah. Right. So they waited to do all this after they got the county to foot the bill uh, for that school building. Right. And they were just trying to hijack this brand new state of the art high school out from the county after it was built. Right. It's right. like literally swindling. And they just keep it for the white kids. What, what's more American than having someone else pay for your nice shit and then running away and stiffing them <laughs> on the bill? Exactly. <laughs> so, it would, I mean, it really was a sort of, it was just an amazing string of, of facts in the case, you know, because the undercurrent of all of this is that North Smithfield was pretty white for Mm -hmm. a while and then as soon as the demographics changed a little they changed a lot and so you know north smithfield was you know persona non grata in gardendale and like all of these surrounding towns are incredibly white and gardendale itself is like really white and they like gardendale played a lot i guess there were some like gardendale isn't a hundred percent white and there are, I guess, black parents who live in Gardendale proper who were on board with it. And I guess that was really important to the Gardendale briefs. They're like, look, even our local blacks are in favor of so there this. Was this. You know, in a really sort of grotesque way of justifying their own racism. During the trial, they had a woman who was... Uh, she had a PhD. Uh, she was an African American woman who had grown up in Gardendale and was an advocate for the creation of this independent school district. And the the attorney for 
the plaintiffs, you know, during cross-examination, was questioning her and was essentially said, you know, you're eminently qualified. You have years of experience working in public education. Are you a member of the Gardendale School District Board? No. Um, did you apply? Yes. Did they hire a white person instead? Yes. <laughs> Are we more experienced than the white person they hired? Yes. Do you think that race played any, uh, did race play a factor in your decision, in their decision to not hire you? And she said yes. And this was a witness for the defense. And the yeah. judge they asked her that. Like the judge yeah, asked it was, her that, was, which is incredible. Oh, the judge? Oh, okay, I thought that was the I thought that was uh, the plaintiff. No, so the, yeah, the plaintiff were questioning her, and then the judge had to restate yeah. the question. Like, okay, yeah, that was an that was an incredible exchange, though, and I think that really kind of you know pulled the veil away from these motives and said, you know, look, uh, behind all of this is that sort of naked racism that you know that's absolutely important. It makes you just like 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 can we, can we just get rid of Alabama? Like, I don't, <laughs> like <laughs> little well, no, sorry, actually, sorry no. for Alabama listeners, but. Like move. Uh, hey, actually, I want to say Mississippi has the most uh, school districts that are still under desegregation orders at sixty-one. Whoa. Com- followed by Alabama at fifty-four, and then again coming in uh, with a bronze medal is Georgia with forty-eight. Hell yeah! Which is interesting because uh, back in the back in the VRA uh, pre clearance yeah. case, uh, this is the. The town and it's like it's like a water district in Texas, so I can't remember the name of it. Shelby, no, it's it's not Shelby. County. Shelbyville, no, no, that's the <laughs> no, Shelby, Shelby County. Shelby County, I think was a that, that, that was the Roberts Shelby VRA County, case, yeah, right. So yeah, so in that in the VRA case, I just remember Roberts basically asking the 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 Justice Department attorney basically being like, so are you saying the South is still worse than the North? <laughs> and like, it was a really, I mean, it was uncomfortable on two levels. One, because of the statistics Pat just cited, where all of these, yeah. all of these Southern counties are still under desegregation orders in their school districts, with, which tells you probably something about where they stand on their voting rights too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... Because I think what gave weight to Robert's argument and his ability to kind of play dumb about why certain states were under pre-clearance requirements and others weren't, are that as the kind of as the kind of rust belt uh, has become increasingly <laughs> run by Republicans. <laughs> they just keep passing horrible voting rights restrictions, and there doesn't seem to be a good reason why Alabama should be subject to preclearance, but say Scott Walker's Wisconsin shouldn't <laughs> yeah, be. Right. And like, and so it ends up being this thing where the thing that makes it discriminatory against the South is that as Republicans have started taking over the North, the North has become more explicitly racist in their design. And so like, and so the idea of sort of discriminating between the states, uh, which is just a, a dumb equal protection argument to begin with, like you have a, you have a hook to hang it on now as like all of these terrible things happen in the North you can just sort of wave away 
the sort of unique. It's a it's a very bold strategy just to like cover everything and shit, and then like tell someone like, "Well, I can't clean it up because it's too dirty now." I mean, which is essentially <laughs> what they're doing. I mean, like I'm from Texas. My high school didn't desegregate until literally the 1980s. The South is like not good, and you know it's 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 <laughs> fucking depressing that we're still talking about this kind of stuff in 2018. But it sort of reflects a nationwide trend, sort of of, of going. Going back to segregation, like, I mean, this is something that's happening actively all around the country. And so, you know, it's just it's fucking depressing. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that I would also want to point out that, you know, a lot of these these court orders are, you know, in place um, in places, you know, counties all across the south. But, um, you know, because the northern cities, you know, the older northern cities, the places in the northeast on the eastern seaboard. Um, you know, because they, you know, didn't have those orders in place or anything like it, um, you know, what you have are, you know, some of the most segregated school districts in the countries are not those in the South, but they're those in cities like Chicago, New York City, um, in Washington, D.C., where where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the majority of public schools are what you would call apartheid schools. Yep. Um, that yeah. is, they have at least 99% uh of, of, you know, either one of, mm-hmm. of one race or the other. Well, I think Vox of all places had an, <laughs> uh, something, something that came out, I guess, a couple weeks ago or a month ago where you could basically put in your, your zip code or your address and it would show you whether the school district that you were in was segregated or was designed in a way to have segregation. And you could say, all right, is this representative of the general population or is it set up in kind of a fashion where we're, you know, Again, essentially gerrymandering the school districts to get racial preference in a certain manner. And, you know, I want to say I live in Alexandria, Virginia, and my school district, we, we came out on top. So, you know, good good for us. Congrats. Yay. My, my former location in Arlington County, unfortunately, was very segregated. So bad on you. I couldn't tell how I whether you were being ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Because, kind of top? because uh, like, like coming out on top is in the way we've all been talking about this. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn and the, the Brooklyn schools are, you know, very, very segregated very in the segregated, way that the neighborhoods yeah. are, in the way the neighborhoods are very segregated. Right. And, you know, the, the district where my son is in school is like a really, really big district, yeah. you know, and it spans from Sunset Park all the way, you know, up to like Cobble Hill. And there are real, real dramatic differences in yeah. the sort of in the student populations and the resourcing. And I think there's a lot going on within the district trying to figure out how to how to reconcile that certainly at like the middle school level, like high school admissions are like not so neighborhood yeah. based and it's really hard to do it with elementary schools. Cause everyone wants to walk to school mm-hmm. yeah. and it just becomes very politically difficult. But once you're in middle school and can kind of take the bus yourself, like changing the admissions around is where the, like, they're trying to sort of hit that so that you can kind of get, uh, kids a little more mobile and, you know, balance out the school population. Yeah, well, that's what I, I find. That's what I found. So, so sort of almost archaic about this whole conversation is, you know, it's sort of imagining 
uh, a time uh, in the U.S. where, you know, courts are going to get down and tell you, you know, you've got to you know, do this and move these kids here and desegregate. I mean, you know, uh, just sort of thinking, you know, the, the, the case started back in 1965, right? And, and the mm-hmm. lawyer uh, at the trial in this case today was the lawyer who tried the case uh, back in the 70s, right? And we're still d- grappling with all these issues, and it's just crazy to me to imagine a court in this day and age uh, entering these sort of sweeping orders, uh, declaring uh, segregation to be uh, some uh, something bad and trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I yeah. mean, a lot of them are Warren court era mm-hmm. decisions that are being handed down by the district courts um, under, you know, then more muscular Supreme Court precedent. Um, and, you know, now the sort of main or the most recent school segregation precedent from the Supreme Court is, is parents involved, which is, um, you know, the home to the most John Roberts of all John Roberts opinions, <laughs> uh, where he says the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop yeah. discriminating on the basis of race. Fucking get him, John. Yeah. That's right. A yeah. statement. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And it, like, I think one of the. One of the things that was interesting about this case to me is that, like, the schools actually desegregated. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, like, uh, you know, New York is just south of Yonkers, which was the subject of the HBO series Show Me a Hero. And Yonkers never did desegregate. They just just literally didn't do it. Mm. And they just sort of waited out the courts. You know, like they finally had like a city manager who was willing to do it, but the population fought it. And then he got run out of office. And then like the the courts just sort of ultimately threw up their hands and nothing happened. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just sort of mind boggling to me that like Yonkers had the wherewithal that Jefferson County didn't. Yeah. Like Jefferson County is like doing it through the back door, though I guess we probably send troops into Jefferson County and no one's sending troops into Yonkers. Tark was leaning over away from the camera. I'm um, back. All right, welcome back. Uh, our uh, our second uh, our second topic today um, is not not a thing you really expect to hear. Uh, usually, when a when a sitting governor is frog marched out of his own office, it is for corruption, uh, not for uh, revenge porn, but that is not that is not our current situation. Not at all. As as uh, as Eric Greitens, uh, Governor Marine Todd, uh, <laughs> has has been arrested. That's Governor for, Navy Seal uh, Todd. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. I don't want to. I don't want to get the uh, 
the sticklers for branch accuracy. Andy's going to be mad. The exp- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, the fact is, uh, I think meme accuracy is more important than correctly identifying his branch of service. 100%. That's right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the governor of, uh, governor of, it's Missouri. Missouri. Right? Missouri. Yeah. Missouri. Missouri. It's like, and all of a sudden, I'm all of a sudden I'm having like a crisis of confidence. Uh, governor Eric Greitens of, uh, Missouri, uh, has been arrested for, um, photographing a woman he was having an affair with naked and making it accessible by computer. Mm. Uh, it's really, it's, it's a very, it's a very sort of specific charge, which am- essentially amounts to uh, non-consensual, non-consensual picture taking and sharing. It's, it's so uh, hard to write these revenge porn laws in a way that is like, you know, eight, like, prosecutable or like able to be enforced and this well it's yeah go ahead i think it's hard to tell here whether and this is like i mean it greitens has a motion to dismiss pending because he says basically this isn't a revenge porn right Mm -hmm. right his defense he's like he's not even addressing like he denies it on the facts right he sort of he sort of says first of all i didn't do any of the things she Uh, says i did but 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 that's not particularly convincing. <laughs> it's like um, in light of other evidence that we'll get to later. But he also says this specific statute uh, was not written as a revenge porn law, and it's never been used as a revenge. No, it's a peeping law. law, right? This is a peeping yeah. porn exactly. law. This is this is for people who set up cameras in dressing rooms or who take upskirt photos mm-hmm. or who do all of these surreptitious. Uh, gross things but the particular gross thing that i did which is fully consensual blindfold which is blindfolding my lover and taking her picture without her knowledge and then threatening to expose it none of that is covered by this specific statute and how dare you sir (laughs) how 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 dare you lump me in i can be an awful perv but it's not a crime like it's just (laughs) Like, the motion to dismiss itself is just ridiculous. Like, it just goes into this really long statutory interpretation argument. And, like, like, and you can so, like, clearly see he's trying to, like, gloss over the fact that he's a nasty, like, abusive perv who took a picture of, like, someone that he was having sex with and then threatened her with it. Well, I thought it was very interesting that a constitutional conservative... Uh, would stray so far from textualism and rely on the legislative history in his support in in support of his his in fairness to Governor Greitens, he he was a Democrat. Uh, and then, <laughs> that's true. And then switched parties only recently. So, you know, he, he, and his, I mean, his dedication to textualism may be uh, <laughs> less than uh, rock solid. He can take the man out of the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this motion to dismiss also was ready to be filed, I think, yeah. the day he was arrested. So, you know, he had sat down with his attorney and um, his attorney had it, you know, ready to, ready to fire it off, which I think goes to the uh, sort of factual circumstances of the case and, and his... Uh, very thin denials of that. Yeah, I mean, like, I, the the fact is that the, the story broke because the woman he was having an affair with confessed to all of 
like essentially confessed to the affair with Greitens, which he has admitted to, but to her husband who confronted her about it. And her husband he was, was taping yeah. her without her knowledge. And so as he got her to admit the affair, she also said, and like, and this other thing he did was he, I couldn't tell anyone about it because he had me tied up and blindfolded and all of that was fine uh, because that was the kind of kink we shared. But then I sort of through the blindfold saw a flash and heard a click. And then he told me that he took a picture of me naked and that if I told anyone about this ever, the picture would be everywhere. And he says he's deleted the picture, but she has no real Mm -hmm. proof or knowledge whether he did or didn't. And the charge seems to imply that at least at some, I don't know if they're implying that they recovered it or that they recovered evidence that he uploaded it to the cloud or something. But they said that the picture was the, the charge in the statute accessible. that he was charged under says it was accessible by a computer. Yeah, it sounds like it was just uh, uploaded to iCloud or something. I mean, which, like, if you read the statute, like, I mean, that's that sounds like it could be, like, within the letter of the law, like, what, they're, what they indicted him for. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, one, one thing about the indictment is that um, because he hadn't, I don't think shared it with uh, another person. They were uh, sort of left to go with the misdemeanor version of the invasion of privacy charge mm-hmm. rather than the felony version, um, which meant the statute of limitations was shorter, which meant that they were working on a quicker timeline. So they had to, I think they had to use the uh, their own sort of private investigators because the um, like the criminal investigation wasn't moving quickly enough. So they basically had to file this, I think within like a couple months or else they would have, you know, lost the opportunity. Yeah. To charge I think him. it was late March. I think it was late March when the statute of limitations would have expired. I mean, one, I, the way he hangs the statutory language that he hangs this on is that it says that the person had to have an expectation of privacy yeah. <clears throat> when they were photographed. And so he reads that in the context of the Peeping Tom statute as saying, like, you have an expectation of privacy in a dressing room. You have an expectation of privacy in a locker room. You have an expectation of privacy in all of these sort of private places. But you don't have an expectation of privacy when you are consensually naked with a person you are having which Sex is with. terrifying. The, like Jesus Christ. Like that's like one well, I mean like I expect to have some sort of privacy whenever I'm like the, Well, what well they but they distinguish <clears throat> it between being seen naked by that person. Like they just try to slice yeah. it razor thin where they're like the you were not expecting to be private from the person who took your photograph. Right. And if the photograph itself is a violation there may be a statute for it, but it's not this one. And this statute says that you have an expectation of privacy in the place where you are. And while if a third party took a picture of her with the governor, that would have been subject to the statute because the two of them would have had an expectation of privacy from the third person. She did not have an expectation of privacy specifically with respect to him. And so 
that takes it outside of the statute. It's just this really mm-hmm. narrow way. Right. They're trying right. to get him outside of the coverage of the statute. Yeah, I mean, they're they're sort of reading in, I think, like a very kind of antiquated, or not, not I mean, I shouldn't even say very antiquated, but they're, they're reading in like a very kind of contract-based theory of consent into this, right? They're, you know, they're basically saying like, well, you know, you agreed to do sex with him. And, like, therefore, yeah. you agreed that anything that might happen, you know, while you're, you know, doing sex uh, is totally fine. Yeah, totally it's like kosher. she checked yes to Adam, all. You, you, like, you, yes. While you're tied entered, to his yeah. Stairmaster, uh, anything I goes. believe the line in the motion to dismiss is, the whole point of the sexual activity is to be viewed by the other person and to jointly participate in private activity. Oh. Love to view that another is, that person. Is straight from the straight yeah. from the brief. And I just want to jump in and talk about this locker room scenario because I mean I've been in a lot of gyms in my life and I have seen a lot of things in a locker room that I thought were supposed to be private <laughs> that were not. <laughs> and I'm just saying, Pat, how many assholes have you seen like up close? I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna plead the fifth. I'm gonna plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> I think he is saying that is five assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, uh, but it's like you know. But, but under this logic, he uses this locker room example. But essentially, you know, taking his analogy one step further, if I want to go in there and just put on my iPhone and say, "All right, well, y'all are walking around without a towel on here. If you didn't want to show me your dong, you shouldn't. You know, you should have kept it on." What? What? Like, essentially, what's the difference between his theory in this case? And, you know, hypothetically, uh, me as a sex pervert recording everybody in the gym. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really. I don't. Am I missing something? I don't think I am. If I am, please tell me I'm wrong. But yeah, no, I think that's right. Like if like if all of the people, you know, in the sort of, you know, typical locker room shower, which isn't individual stalls, it's just, you know, like a dozen shower heads. What? Sticking out. Wait, what? That's how guys showers are? A lot of. I mean, a lot of. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. you just stand in there it's like naked like, with each other and like you just it's not like Oz. Like oh look at I mean look at like well, but I mean a lot of showers are like that. I mean like all of the shower scenes in all the teen movies where the creepers are like, you know, jumping into the girls' locker room in high school. Girls or whatever. locker room They're showers not shower are not stalls. like it's that. Just, we have our own little rooms because we're like civilized people. So it's not like porkies, is what you're telling it's me. It's not like I'm sorry to disappoint you. Anyway, yeah. back to the back to the locker room. <laughs> uh, yeah, but well, but like anything, but like if you watch, please. but it, like if you watch any, but if you watch any like prison show with a shower, yeah. scene, yeah, that's okay. basically what the shower looks like. Where Ugh. it's just all, it's just a bunch of showers, heads sticking out of the wall, and everyone sort of you know looks at the wall, like you, 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 you avoid like, stares contact. very carefully at the wall. Or each of the stones. And so, but that, but that is right, Pat. That is the same analogy. Like everyone is there uh, with limited expectation of privacy, right? You're only expecting to be viewed by the other person in the room. And I guess he would say that, I guess the way he would thread the needle here is he would say that all of the people who are showering at the same time uh, have no expectation of privacy vis-a-vis each other. But if someone else had set up like a live stream of the room, yeah. that person would be violating all of their privacy, right? That's how he, that's how he would like 
ex- get himself into that same scenario where he's like, she had no expectation of privacy from me, but no one else should have been looking at the two of us. And since she had no expectation of privacy from me, my grotesque threatening photo <laughs> does not meet yeah. this very specific statute meant to capture uh, a pervert who is different than my kind of pervert. That very so like eviscerates the social contract that you have when you're nude with another person. You know, I mean, I've been naked with my wife, but I wouldn't want her like taking pictures of me without my knowledge and, you know, sharing them with other people or whatnot. And I'm sure the other married people in, uh, you know, on the podcast to say the same thing. It's like, it, I mean, maybe this is too of a textual reading, but his theory seems to say that as long as you allow yourself to kind of be vulnerable in front of another person, they can do whatever they'd like at that point. You're giving up all these rights and, you know, kind of consenting to, you know, them surreptitiously even like recording you two having sex for your own lose later on, which seems to me to be exactly what the revenge porn statute is written to prevent. Right. Though he says that's yeah, not, it's a, a, I mean, his argument is that, that yeah. it's not a revenge point. Statute. Right. His argument is that it it's specifically statute. addressed, right. It specifically addressed two things, right. There are two sections of it. One refers to like, you know, uh, an expectation of privacy in a private place, which is the kind of dressing room, locker room scenario. And then the other one is like, a sort of narrower expectation of privacy in a public place, which seems a lot more like upskirt photos right. and things like that. So he's like, if you, then this is where he gets into the legislative history. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so if you look at what they said about it at the time, these are the problems they were trying to address. And this is why they wrote the statute in these ways that they did. But it still seems like not to confront the the nature of what privacy is like she was she was consensually naked in front of him she was not consenting and he explicitly like she wasn't consenting to be photographed and he clearly you know the threat also seems to indicate <laughs> that he knew that there was no consent yeah. there, right? I'm going to take this picture while you're blindfolded and I will threaten you with it. And this is, and she told, and like to get back to something I was saying earlier, she told this story to her husband who she didn't know was recorded, <laughs> right? She while told, confessing she, the entire when, affair. Right. While confessing the affair, she's like, so the recording is her with like in a scenario where she is not like under oath as part of the prosecution. Like she's not even particularly negatively disposed towards him, you know, though she's sort of apologizing to her husband for everything that happened or whatever. But she didn't know she was being recorded at the time. And then he leaked the rec- I I don't remember the exact sequence. I don't know. If, I don't think he turned it over to prosecutors. I think he just turned it over to the press. This poor woman. Uh, like, she just cannot, like, stop getting recorded yeah. or taking pictures of, so, like, when she's talking. So is the husband the one who's funded by Soros then? Oh, my no, God. No, that's the district attorney. Uh, yeah, so I guess the, yeah, the, supplement, the supplement to the MTD is that uh, the Missouri... GOP has, uh, you know, blamed the prosecution on the eternal Jew. Uh, <laughs> said that all those St. Louis liberals, all 12 of them. More than 200,000 from George Soros groups. <laughs> um, 
I keep checking my mailbox. Wow. <laughs> Any day I now. I really. Any day now, Charles. Any day I'll get that check. It, I mean, it's funny. She does keep getting recorded, and she's like literally the <laughs> only sympathetic one here because yeah. the husband really. He's an asshole. Also, kind of comes off. Huge like, piece of shit. Huge piece of shit because, like, I guess her name really isn't in the press because most people are not printing mm-hmm. it but i mean he's the guy who leaked it he's in the press and so his it's like his wife and he was just doing it to get after the guy uh who cucked him the guy who cucked him <laughs> so just so do me a favor like everyone who's listening to this podcast and please look up governor greitens because he extremely looks like someone who would revenge porn his oh no uh, he's the mistress. worst i mean we have to talk about this because you know he's yeah. he's he has a number of books that he's written uh, and his Amazon uh, author uh, name is Eric Greitens Navy seal. Oh, right. He's got a number of books written about like uh, uh, one is the heart and the fist uh, yeah. about, uh, <laughs> you know, and then he, he has written a number of uh, police ethics courses or something. Oh. Yeah. That's right. He, um, his complete warrior ethics curriculum. <laughs> it's like guerrilla uh, mindset, but for Republicans. It's, it's, it's one page in the late. It's 2000s. one page long. Is, is it? It's a, is that capitalized? Is that, says, is it, does he have like a trademark on on that, Adam? Um, I mean, I think it's it's in all caps in the the tweet I'm seeing. Well, I like how he all, he was the guy who had the political ads where. One of them involved him using, I believe it was an either an M4 or an AR-15 to shoot a barrel that exploded in a field. Yeah. And the other one was just him unloading <laughs> a main right. gun into a lake. Yes. You know, basically saying, I hate the environment so much, I'm going to shoot up this lake with a minigun. Vote for me against the other lips. I mean, he looks he looks like Mike Cernovich. Is that, that's, I mean, like. I mean, his eyes are a little bit farther apart than Mike's. A little so let's bit. Give him credit in that respect. Um, and his face is less. Uh, Square. Squished in yeah. other ways as well. Um, he's not using the nootropics, which I think is. That was his problem. mistake. <laughs> yeah, that was his mistake. Yeah. If he had, he wouldn't have been caught. should do five points that's number three for today folks our last topic is the is the recent um the recent litigation over the five points building in uh queens i don't know uh how many people are familiar with this but uh if you google five points with his uh, sorry (laughs) 
Yeah, that is how they pronounce it. Um, it's another thing that I get wrong, just pronouncing it points like a sucker. Like, like an old um, white guy. They, uh, it was uh, just a building, a warehouse, like a derelict warehouse building that sat in a useless, undeveloped part of Long Island City in Queens for decades. Uh, that the that the owner of the building had essentially turned over to uh, one graffiti artist, Jonathan Cohen, uh, just to let him curate everything. And like every inch of this place was covered in aerosol work. On the outside, it was like a multi-story building, and like from the sidewalk to the to the roof was covered. And all the interior walls were covered. It's cool. You guys and should look the, it up. Like, like yeah, it's, yeah, it looked really it's cool. Really, really cool, good work. And then in the intervening decades, the property actually became worth something. And the guy uh, decided to turn it into a, uh, you know, he was going to tear it down and turn it into condos. Luxury condos. And luxury condos, of course, because no one makes uh, cheap condos uh, anymore in New York. And so he was going to, Tear it down, turn it into luxury condos, and uh, all of the graffiti artists who had been working on this thing forever uh, tried to stop it in various ways. They tried to get an injunction against it. They tried to buy it, and they almost like apparently they almost raised enough money to buy it when it was worth like forty million bucks. But then he got like a building variance he needed. That would have allowed him to make it into condos instead of, I guess, whatever industrial use Mm -hmm. it was zoned for before that. And as soon as he got condo permission, the property went from being worth 40 million to 200 200 million. And that was it. Like like five points, people couldn't raise that kind of scratch. And so they were done. Uh, And so uh, they sued under VARA, uh, which is, I think, the Visual Artists Recognition Act. I don't want to screw up that. Visual Artist Rights Act. Visual Artist Rights Act. Recognition is one of the uh, rights Mm -hmm. under that umbrella. Um, So the Visual Artist Rights, they tried to to get an injunction uh, stopping him from tearing down the building. And they lost the TRO application. The judge denied them the preliminary injunction. And the second... (laughs) He denied the preliminary injunction. The developer sent in crews with buckets of paint and rollers and just whitewashed the whole goddamn overnight. Thing. It was like a, like, like a TV villain kind of shit. Well, like I thought, you know, I thought it was interesting that uh, when the TRO was denied, the judge still warned the I guess Wolkoff was the uh, the building owner that if he did anything to like fuck up these this art that he was opening himself up to of our lawsuit and serious potential damages. But he was essentially apparently enough of an asshole that he didn't care. And, you know, it was, you know, full steam ahead at that point. He just, I think, you know, he was, I think he was really, it's funny, like the levels of anger in here, because I think he was really pissed that he let these guys, uh, tag up his building for so long and he thought that he was like super generous in doing so. And I think like it's funny, like in this sort of sympathy for the devil kind of way, that I think he felt incredibly betrayed. Yeah. He did. Right? Yeah, 100%. He sits on this he sits on this property for decades. He lets them tag it up. And then 
as soon as he can do something with the property, they all turn on him just like, you know, like, like he's just like, I knew they would do this to me all along. Yeah. Like they only pretended to think I was cool. But the thing is like a couple things, right? Like number one, um, as you said, like the property increased in value, uh, tremendously over the time that he permitted this to occur. And I think there was a sort of undercurrent in the decision where, frankly, the fact that these folks had made this into, uh, uh, you know, a, a landmark in some respects really inured to his benefit as the owner of the pro- yeah. uh, property. Right. And the second thing is I've said this on Twitter a bunch of times, but you know, my feeling about litigation is generally this, um, the judge is going to figure out who the asshole is and make them lose. And he did everything he could to be the asshole in this case. And he lost. That's why Tarek does so poorly in court. (laughs) I mean, mean, what's funny is that is, I think that's a democratic judicial philosophy. Whereas, whereas it really seems like textualism is designed for asshole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> like textualism is a legal principle, uh, which was uh, put in place by extensive lobbying uh, by assholes. That's right. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, I mean, and so what ended up happening is he whitewashes the building and what was initially a suit for an injunction uh for various reasons, either a permanent injunction or an injunction that allowed them to remove whatever art could be removed. Like some of it almost certainly couldn't have been removed because the same people who couldn't afford to buy the building also couldn't have afforded to sort of lift a four-story work of art off the side of the building. Um, But there were smaller pieces that could have been cut off of interior walls. Drywall. Or things like that. Yeah, like, yeah, things that were put up on drywall or on other or doors, removable materials, right? There was a lot of stuff that could have been removed had he allowed it. Um, And so they end up suing for damages. And they, like, unlike a lot of cases where people are familiar where the damages are the amount of harm you receive, uh, Vara, like a lot of similar statutes in intellectual property, has what are called statutory damages, where the statute itself says a piece of a piece of art that is ruined in violation of Vara is worth this amount, right? And it like the original, like I think the statute says around thirty thousand dollars per, with the exception that if the damage was done willfully. Mm-hmm. Then it jumps to 150,000. Right. Exactly. There is, there is to, to sort of bring this back to the last pod's episode uh, in the discussion of uh, deterrence. There was no last pod. There is, uh, well, to bring it back to the non existent uh, Slender Man discussion <laughs> of deterrence, uh, which happened, I guess, in the ether, um, <laughs> there's a deterrence prong in, in VARA when, when the judge is deciding on you know, what sort of damages to assess. Yeah, and and in this case, he found like he found a bunch of things willful. I mean, first of all, just the whitewashing and the kind of slapdash whitewashing where it didn't even really didn't necessarily cover, anything, cover right? everything. Like you could literally like I mean, the 
the building was visible from the seven train, like the elevated line. Like millions of people saw this like every week. It's like it basically a commuter train into Manhattan uh, from like Jackson Heights and Elmhurst and, you know, is an elevated line that goes right past the building. And from the train, you could see like the ghost of the art underneath, like this one thin layer of white paint. So he just sort of ruined everything. And this was sort of really a big part of the judge's opinion where he's like, you know, you you did it without. Like, I warned you that this would happen if you did it and then you did it. And then you were a huge pain in the ass when you were tested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like getting this you, gets back to this gets back to what you were saying um, uh, in the episode five with the death penalty, right? Like you can tell in the first few sentences what's going to happen, and then mm-hmm. under right. under Roman yeah. numeral oh, one, he clearly he says, hated the guy. You know, on November twelfth, twenty thirteen, after a hearing, court issued an order denying preliminary injunctive relief, stating that a written opinion would soon be issued. Rather than wait for the court's opinion, which was issued eight days later. Wolkoff destroyed almost all the paintings by whitewashing them, you know? <laughs> so in the first three right. sentences, you know where this is going. So how much money did they end up getting? Like, it's like millions of dollars, right? 6.7 million, <laughs> I believe, was the total amount for all of the yeah. artists. Yeah. Which was, yeah. I mean, he went through, he went through, there were 49, right? They, like the statutory standard is like that they had to have, I'm going to get the terminology wrong because I don't have it in front of me. But they had to have received, they had to have um, achieved a level of recognition. Uh, and so a lot of this stuff didn't fall under the statute. Recognized stature. Rec- yeah. Rec- and a lot of it didn't fall under the statute either because it was too new mm-hmm. or because it was not even recognized by the five points people as being particularly important. Like they, like they would give. Prominent placement, like the you could stuff see from the train on the exterior walls, the stuff you could see from the train, all of that would go to like the recognized artists, the really talented people. And then other people would rotate through almost like apprenticeships and they would just cover each other's work, mm-hmm. like with permission, not like really aggressive, like graffiti war bombing kind of shit. But like they would be like one part of the wall where they're you like, no you can have this yeah. space for two months. Yeah, you know, they knew their stuff was getting covered, but they could photograph it and they could say they were in the five points community. And if it was good enough, like if it was good enough, like the like the the people who run the place would just be like, no one can ever cover yeah. it. <laughs> right? right. And so it could like achieve stature by the acclaim of the community. You know, and so like, I mean, and and the judge lays out like all of this history and how things achieved stature. And then he goes one by one through the 49 pieces that the that the artists claimed had received stature. And he agrees on 45. This poor jury. And I cannot so, imagine. Oh, well, there's yeah, another interesting <laughs> part about that, too. Right. Because the, the jury yeah, yeah, sat right. through this then whole trial. Someone tell us about the jury. So procedurally, at some point towards the end of the trial, the plaintiffs waived their jury rights. And it was like, right a, like a three week trial. Statements. Yeah, it was a jury trial. There was there were eight jurors who sat through the whole thing. And at some point, like right at the end, the, the, the plaintiffs waived the jury rights, uh, which, by the way, like you could tell they waived their jury rights because 
like those first three sentences yeah. of the opinion <laughs> must have been on the judge's yeah. face exactly. the whole time. Like, I mean, I mean, the judge's opinion, like he was so mad quotes from like from like the trial colloquy where he's trying to drag a, a responsive answer out of Wolkoff. And so at some point, clearly plaintiff's counsel was like, guys, guys. The judge fucking hates this guy. Yeah. And there's, he, he, there's and no consented. way he rules against He consented I, to I, the waiver. I, I believe yeah. the, the, the language used by the judge was that uh, the, the defendant had been motivated by pure peak and revenge of the nerve of plaintiffs to attempt to sue to prevent the destruction of their art. And I yep. mean, that uh, is, uh, that, that, you know, that tells he you hated him. how he felt in no uncertain terms. Right. Okay. So, Tarek, no, so, so, so they so, sit so for they three go weeks. through they sit through this whole trial, and at the end, the 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 plaintiffs waive their jury rights. So the judge converts the jury to an advisory jury, but doesn't tell the jury <laughs> because they had been working so hard. Yeah. He didn't want to like hurt their feelings. Yeah, he has a whole <laughs> section about how how great they were. They were always on time. They paid attention. They sat through all this stuff, and yeah. <laughs> There were like there were like fifty exhibits, you know, like pieces of art, and he's like they took each one seriously, and they like went like they paid attention during the history of each of the pieces of art, all of the artists, and some of them like were f- from outside of the country, uh, like all of the artists either came or testified by Skype, video, yeah, yep. like the yeah. like they all came in and made sure to like defend their own artwork. You know, and so so now they're an advisory jury, they don't know it. which the yeah. federal federal rules allow him to do. But he doesn't tell them. And so they just deliberate normally and they come back and they they say, uh, I think they said like 39 or something like not quite as many as the judge. Like they thought that more of them had not achieved stature and, and they awarded about a million dollars, something like that. Yeah. And so then the ju- the judge takes it and he goes, I agree with all of the ones that you think achieved stature. He said, thanks very much. You know, your opinion on like all of this is hugely useful to me. I think all of the ones that you think achieved stature did, but also these six. And also, thank you for your damages ruling. But I, as the judge, have the discretion to find willfulness. Yep. And I find willfulness on all of them. And so it's 150,000 per for 40, for like 45 different. The max, uh, the max. He gave him the max. I mean, part of this to me seems though like really shitty lawyering on the defendant's part that they let their client get on the stand like that. Well, it's client control issues. I mean, like. Yeah, he was so confrontational and he was, you know, if you're going to fight with the judge and basically admit to every element of a willfulness statute. It's like, Jesus Christ, if I'm his lawyer, I'm, you know, getting an ulcer listening to him do this. I'm trying to object. It's and that after he made an ass of himself on the stand and the plaintiff said, well, you know, we'd like to waive our jury rights. They consented to the waiver. Yeah, they're like, yeah, fine. <laughs> hubris. It's his hubris. But you know what? Like yeah. in the greater scheme of things, this building is worth two hundred million dollars right now. They're getting a yeah. seven million dollar ding. Like it doesn't matter. Like that's 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 really I feel like the long and short of it. Right, and I agree with Christina that only respect, in New you know, York. The, 
Well, the judge mentioned the deterrent <laughs> effect multiple times. He's like, look, I'm giving you the full statutory damages to get that deterrent effect. And it's like, all right, well, I'm getting a profit of, right, he bought the building in the early 70s. It's now worth $200 million. Um, You know, 6.7 is, yeah, yeah, it's a drop in the bucket, essentially. Yeah. I mean, and it's what he also, he dismissed, act. I think at an earlier stage of the litigation, one of the things that they, the artists tried to claim was that their artwork like contributed to the value. Right. And like, so they were trying to get the 200 million bucks, they, they should have done, which I think explains why he fought so hard so early, yeah. they, you know. They should have had some sort of they, wild adverse possession theory, you know, let's try to create some new law for when all property students. Oh, yeah. no, 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 they didn't, I, I don't think they claimed adverse possession. That would possession. be so cool. <laughs> they should have. In, yeah, in, they should they have. That would have, been a, that would have been more interesting facts. In I other think, countries, they would have had a stronger theory. moral rights argument. I think that VAR isn't particularly strong as far as, as, far as moral rights go. Um, so I, oh. this point is actually courtesy of my friend who wrote a paper about five points in law school. Um, but other countries have much stronger moral rights laws that basically they can, you know, civil, civil law countries, can, you can, if your work is obtained certain stature, you can, you can, uh, prevent like any sort of defacement or altering of it. But there, you know, but again, there's, there's, there's really no doubt that they increased the value of his property, you know, right. whether well, they succeeded so by increasing or not, the hipness yeah. of the exactly. neighborhood mostly. Exactly. Right. You know, like, in, like they probably didn't directly increase the value of the building because he's going to knock all that shit down. But the presence of five points was important to like, Turning Long Island City from an industrial yeah, zone wasteland when we were into, kids, right? in, yeah, uh, yeah, all the coffee into shops, a residential neighborhood. Yeah, all the coffee shops and bars that are there right now are only there because it's existed. Yeah, and that's going to be that's a driver. Yeah, I mean, I don't live in New York, but I assume that's a driver for uh, you know yuppies that want to move to the Queens for some reason. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, just and just to get to one point, they had no good adverse possession. Okay. <laughs> because they were there with his consent. The whole exactly. Time. So basically, they had moral rights to both of these nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that was shoehorned okay. in. I've been thinking that. There is no way I opened myself up. Slackbot. <laughs> 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 have you considered the Bofa um, ruling, Charles? <laughs> Bofa boys rule. See bio. <laughs> the uh, yeah. So it, I. It just really was a, the opinion was just so mean to him because it just, it, they so clearly hated him. I mean, there really was a lot of colloquy in the opinion of him just being. He's an asshole. On the stand. And he uh, lost. I'm telling you. Yep. Uh, at the trial yep. level. Well, he's an asshole you know, you worth can, $200 million now. Yeah, so it's exactly. like, you know. But you can, yep. you know, you can take your statutory interpretation at the appellate level. But at trial level, the asshole loses and he lost. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's, the argument at the appellate level is clearly going to be that this, like, it can't mean that you can't knock down your own building. No. Like, whatever Vara is, they couldn't have stopped him. But the answer is going to be that there were other measures in place. You're right. supposed to give them 90 days notice. Right. And, the and you just whitewashed the whole thing. And it also, I think he was also really mad because Vara didn't exist when he first let them in and nothing like this will ever happen again on new buildings, because if Vara had existed, 
at the time that he first let the artists into the building, he would have conditioned it all on waiving their Vara right. Like Vara, Vara has a waiver provision and he never, ever would have allowed any of this to happen. Well, when, uh, when was Vara and or Vara enacted? Not that long ago. That's new. Okay, I don't remember exactly when it was. Because it this didn't happen. Like 2013 is, I guess, when the first time he started making noises about turning this into condos. Right. So, but it had been way before then right, yeah. that he had started allowing them to turn right. up the place. Right. Right. Um, so, so like when he allowed the artists in and Jonathan Cohen, like apparently took like the curation really seriously yeah. and like Wolkoff was hip enough to like know who to put in charge of, you know, this community, you know, and a well-recognized artist, which by the way, also kind of indicates that Wolkoff knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he didn't just let a bunch of like kids with, with aerosol cans just start tagging shit all over the wall. No, he had a whole plan. He went and got a recognized artist to create a community in the building, which I think also kind of weakens his case. Like he knew what he was, he knew what he was doing in terms of his own building, even though ultimately the judge decided that he could never figure out <laughs> in any credible way what increase in value would have been attributed to the artist. So he just washed his hands of that whole issue and dismissed it. He's just like, he basically is like, it might be true that, you know, you made the whole thing cooler, uh, but you're like, I'm not awarding you $200 million (laughs) and I'm just dismissing this whole claim. A lot of assholes this week. Anyone? Jeez. That is, look, this podcast doesn't exist without assholes. That's right. We are powered by assholes. It is the soil that Mike Dicta grows mm, in. Smells. Is the Smell fertilizer the of assholes. Uh, anyone have any com- any uh, additional comments on uh, this or any of our cases? No. That sounds like a no. So I'm going to wrap up episode eight slash nine of uh, Mike Dicta. I'd like to thank uh, all of the panelists, uh, Tarek and Christina and Adam and Pat uh, my name is Charles. Uh, check out uh, the SoundCloud for all of our handles, and we'll see you uh, next week. Good night. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. <laughs>